Hello, we hope you're all well. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about meditation and mindfulness, and we're joined by founder of the Mountain Way charity, Andy, as well as the chair, John, and our clinical psychologist, Pat. Well, I think it's very uh, apposite to be talking about um, meditation in a very general sense and, and how we see it in the Mountain Way. I learned uh, quite a long time ago that actually I'd been meditating for most of my life. I just didn't realize it. Uh, when I was a child, it was called catching flies, which basically meant staring out the window with your mouth open. There's, there's a huge, it's a huge subject. And uh, when I bought the Meditation for Dummies book, I was surprised I think it was. When I'd read it, I realized I knew very little about it. And this is why it's a bit confusing to people. But from the Mountain Way point of view, I think what soldiers need is simplicity and something that works quickly and easily. So um, it's the first thing uh, I introduce our guest to. And it's quite relevant to be talking about this today because today is the 38th anniversary of the end of three commando brigades battles to recapture Stanley in the Falklands War in 1982. And uh, in the unit I was in, 4-5 commando, uh, we attacked a mountain which we began attacking at last light called Two Sisters. And I remember very clearly standing with about 400 other people as the light went down in total silence, uh, smoking our last cigarette, waiting for darkness to move off to start the battle and thinking, uh, I wonder if I'll see that sun again. And it's only years later through social media and reading posts today, in fact, that I discovered many other people had the same thought, which is not surprising really. However, 38 years ago right now, I was on top of that mountain watching the sun come up again and the battle was over. And uh, the sense of um, disbelief in a way, gratitude particularly, uh, was overwhelming. What is meditation about and what do you gain from it? Perhaps it's a, a, a general opinion that the, the function of med meditation is really to clear your mind. And, and that provides a little oasis in time. Um, that gives you a little bit of uh, respite from the Otherwise, in some cases, constant white noise that people suffering from PTSD live with. Uh, so it's a very valuable um, tool for that point of view. In terms of learning how to do it, you can learn the basics in less than half an hour, and it's just merely a question of practice. The other side of meditation, which is probably um, more commonly understood, is meditating actually on particular topics. So rather than having an empty mind, you're focusing your mind on something specific. Uh, I use natural things. I use water air, uh, plants. It sounds a bit sort of thin, as if you're, how long can you stare at a, a flower for? But once you start that, uh, and opening your mind uh, to thinking about anything at all that comes into your mind, you suddenly discover half an hour's gone by and you've thought of nothing else. But you've also gained knowledge, not only knowledge about the object, but also about yourself. Have you got any comments on this, John? I think the concept of meditation for, for, for a person who is... Uh new to it, it can, can often be really daunting. And, uh, and my view is that there's a really simple way of getting into it. Um, and that's by just choosing the emotion and feeling of gratitude. That is very accessible, starting with small things um, that you can be grateful for, and then moving on to bigger things. And, it, and, it, and it's a really easy way of uh, focusing on positives. Uh, it, it could set you up for um, your morning's work or your day or your week. You know, I'm certainly no expert, but I think um, it's really easy to uh, start a process like that and, and realize that uh, you probably, it's fair to say most people have probably got an awful lot to be grateful for. In a world where 
we seem to be consumed by success in our careers and the uh, ever-increasing acquisition of material properties. It's likely to be a very healthy process to uh, forget all that and just think about what you have, the people you have, the relationships you have. And depending on your own experiences, uh, it can go a lot deeper than that. I spent, uh, outside of a military context, I spent a lot of time working in, in, in Africa in some quite remote places. And it changed my mind forever about um, the ability to turn on a tap and have clean, drinkable, running water. It's very easy, I find, to, be, to, to, to find gratitude for things that we all too often take for granted. We are put off by, by starting this process because it seems to be uh, a mystical one and uh, requiring a great deal of skill and practice. It can be a really simple uh, idea to get, uh, to get started. What do you think, Pat? John, you're absolutely right. That there's a lot of kind of maybe confusion about mindfulness. And I think one of the reasons why is it is so incredibly simple, but so very difficult to do. So what, what we look for, for mindfulness is getting the balance, the balance between things like our emotions and our logic. So, so we talk about being an emotional mind when we're very overwhelmed by our emotions. We talk about being in logical mind when we just focus on, on facts. And what we need to be is in wise mind. So, so when you read old writings, Eastern writings, they talk about, you know, if you only focus on emotions, you, you're a, um, I think they call it, kind-hearted fool. If you only focus on facts, you're a hard-hearted intellect. And this idea that to, to be truly just, you had to have compassion. So there was this element of balancing. So, so this idea culturally throughout history, there, there's been this importance of an awareness that there's a balance between logics and facts and, and emotion. And, and, you know, the, the term heart and mind, it, 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 it's something that we use every day. And I think when mindfulness was introduced into the Western context, it came via mental health and, and really pain management in the 80s. And it was very much about noticing and let, letting go of distressing thoughts. So, so, of course, in mental health, people are often troubled by intrusive thoughts, intrusive memories, unpleasant body sensations. So the part of mindfulness that was focused on was very much notice, let go, step back, ground yourself in the present. The past is gone. The future hasn't happened. But at this moment in time, you are safe. More recently, people have begun to, to kind of remember that actually there's something else about mindfulness, which is about having an expansive and constrictive. So we, so we talk about the zoom lens and the wide angle lens. So the wide angle lens is a bit like pulling back and being like a landscape painter and seeing all of the different parts and how they fit together and just noticing the natural connection and beauty in that. The zoom lens is a bit like being a watchmaker where you zoom in and you focus on the fine detail and how all the cogs interact with each other, but how they all fit into that, that watch case. We can use this skill in, in very effective ways. So I can have a distressing thought. I might be having problems at work. I might be having problems just thinking about some of my past experiences. I can become aware of that. I can notice that and I can let go. And then what I can do is I can direct my mind to being appreciative and grateful for some of the things that maybe haven't happened to me or maybe some of the good things I have in my life. And what mindfulness is about is really being aware of your thoughts and in control of your thoughts. And it really is as simple as that. The problem is that is so much easier to say than it is to do. And I think that's what Andy says. You can go through the practice and understand this, you know, very, very quickly. But what you need, and I think you mentioned it, John, as well, is this constant repetition you need to catch your mind go oh gosh i've gone 
back into thinking about what happened to me in the past. Oh, I've jumped forward to thinking about what's going to go wrong in the future. What I need to do is bring myself into the here and now, get into a wise mind where my emotions and my logic are balanced so that I can respond instead of react. So I talk to, to people quite a lot about mindful responding versus mindless reaction. And it's the mindless reaction which is often fueled by very powerful emotions. So, so I think it's really just getting that balance and being aware that we are not our thoughts. Our thoughts and emotions are not facts, but we can also direct the focus of our attention. Mindfulness is actually quite a big and encompassing thing, but it's underpinned by some very basic principles. Be aware of your thoughts and direct your thoughts in a way that is helpful to you. How do people get into it? What, what's the best starting point? I, I use the analogy. I, I, I have a three-year-old daughter and we're, we're teaching her to count. I don't say what's one plus two. It equals three because that's very abstract. So what we have is we have three buttons and I put another one in and she counts up to four and I take two buttons away and she counts down to two. So the way I teach mindfulness is, is probably very similar to how Andy's described. I use things in the natural environment. So I make it very concrete. So I, I might give somebody, I've got a collection of, of rare minerals, which, which I just found in a, in a charity shop. And they're just really interesting. Imagine you're describing it to someone who's never seen this before or somebody's in a different room and can't see it. So, so I start with very concrete physical things that people can hold. And, and I work through the five senses. So I might do something like lavender oil so people can start to be mindful of smell. I might do something like a squishy stress ball so they can do touch. I might do something like a wind charm to use sound or just very naturally what you can notice in the room. But the danger of using objects is, is then what happens is people kind of, they, they treat that object as a safety blanket and it's like, oh goodness, I haven't got my, my mindful stone with me. So they can become very attached to these objects. The one thing we always have with us is our breath. No matter where I go, I might forget my, my safety crutch or whatever, my, my safety object but I'll always have my breath with me. Also, by being mindful of your breath, you can become aware that when you get stressed, when you get anxious, you start to breathe faster and your breathing goes like that. And what mindfulness of your breath does is calms your breathing down. So you take a, a short breath in and a longer, slower breath out. And of course, that calms the system down. So being mindful of your breath is, is a really good one because it means you're focusing on your breathing and your breathing will start to calm you down. It means that you will always have your breath with you. So very, very simple. Start off doing it for a few moments, you know, even maybe 10 seconds or maybe even five seconds. Then when you can do that, you build it up to 20 seconds, a minute, two minutes. What you don't want to do is, is be spending all day being mindful. There is a danger that if you overuse mindfulness, you're using it as avoidance or distraction, Mindfulness is not distraction. Mindfulness is being aware of the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions and what's happening, but choosing what you're going to focus on. Just to go back a, a click or two. First of all, that word balance, that, that's the word that I use more often than any other word when helping our guests, getting them to understand the importance of balance in everything in our lives. So that's where we're heading, if you like, trying to achieve that. In terms of meditation, because we're dealing with soldiers who are used to a disciplined environment, there is a system here which encourages people to be regimented about it. And what I do when we're actually with our guests in the mountains is we start the morning with a morning routine. 
Uh, one of the problems with PTSD is that their routines go out the window and we've got to try and get them back to some sort of normalcy. Uh, so one way of doing that is, is very much like as soldiers in the field when we used to stand to at dawn uh, and at dusk for the same reasons we kind of put those bookends to the, the light period and the dark period. It sort of defined night and day. Uh, this is similar. And there are three things to do. The first thing we do is uh, drink a pint of water, which for some people is a bit of a shock, actually. You'd be surprised how many people don't actually see water as an essential thing. Um, so we're trying to re-educate them in that sense. And also it's, it's essential for the organs and, and so on. Uh, secondly is to do a, a gentle stretching routine uh, so what we're starting to do now is harmonizing the body and then wind up with about 10 minutes of very simple meditation and that is a, a package which I begin every day of my life with since I discovered it and, and it never varies and there's a similar routine in the evening um, so so regular practice is important because without that familiarity with it it isn't going to have a great deal of an impact. And I think it's like a lot of things. It's like going on a diet or suddenly deciding to get fit. People are very good at starting these things, but they can't necessarily keep them going. And unfortunately, that's why it doesn't have the effect you'd expect. You've got to change your thinking and say, right, this is a new habit, which I am now adopting. Um, meditation is really a way of understanding what's going on inside the brain. Once you set up a habit, all you've got to do is keep that going and you can build a routine into your life, then you will get the benefits from it, no question about it. So when I've tried meditation before, I assume that I'm doing it wrong because I still have thoughts. Thoughts are natural. Um, I, I wouldn't by any stretch of the imagination call myself an expert. There'd be something very wrong if you weren't getting thoughts. This is where the self-discipline comes in, and as Pat mentioned, uh, I'm glad he mentioned it, because the way we deal with that is by focusing on the breath. When I get a thought in my head, I metaphorically label it as thought. Now, the, the point about giving it a label is that you don't actually recognize what that thought is. It might be something very negative. It could be something pleasant. But usually it's, you know, it's, it's a benign thing or it's unconnected. I mean, we have these all the time in our waking and our sleeping lives. Um, and we don't appear to control them. Um, I like using uh, analogies. And the one I find most effective is actually um, images from Star Trek, that great TV series years ago. Um, where I sort of try to explain to our guests that you are not necessarily your thoughts. I'm trying to get them to understand that the core personality is not the thought. And if you can make that separation, then the next logical step is therefore you can probably control that thought. Although the th those thoughts appear on the screen, um, they don't necessarily impact on their lives. Uh, and it's a question of learning how to use the remote control. And one of those, um, uh, if you like, buttons on the remote control is meditation. So it's not unnatural to get a thought, especially in the early stages. And again, it comes back to this habit-forming way of doing things. If you, uh, another analogy I use is I've got a photograph of two bridges, one of which is collapsed over a river, of course, and, and the other one's intact. And I use that to explain that uh, Mr. Jones used to work, drive to work every morning over this particular bridge, and then one day it fell down, um, and he had to find a new route. And by using that new route, he gradually forgot the old route, and the new route became the current route. And uh, we've all done this in our lives, you know, when you, when you go off on a journey somewhere, the journey to a destination that's new always seems to take longer than the return journey. And that's because of the familiarity aspect. So the same applies here. If you'd like to find out more about the Mountain Way, do visit our website www.mountainway.org 
If you'd like to request more information, please do email us at info at mountainway.org and we'll send you our PDFs of information. And do follow us on social media. If you need support now, reach out to charities such as Samaritans, Mind or your GP. Once you get into the habit of labelling a thought as just a thought and then moving that metaphorically in your mind to the flank, by focusing your gaze on a neutral aspect and then controlling the gaze so that your gaze actually goes slightly out of focus and letting it happen. We have a natural tendency to focus on whatever we're looking at. Well, once you learn how not to focus, it doesn't do any damage. It's just simply a case of not focusing. Um, then the information that's coming in through your eyes is no longer relevant. Uh, and a lot of guys I talk to find it easier to start meditation with their eyes open than their eyes shut. We try both to see which works for whom. Um, all the way through this early stage, of course, they're focusing on their breathing. And to start with, I get them to concentrate on literally counting the in-breaths, count up to five, and then start again. And once you got into that sense, uh, that rhythm, what's happening is your mind is focusing on counting, so it's ignoring everything else. The next stage is to forget counting, which really is a bit of a leap into the dark because now you apparently have lost control. In other words, thoughts can intrude again. Uh, but that's the next interesting part because that's where you now put them on a flank and ignore them. And it's that simple self-discipline that enables you to get to a point where eventually it doesn't matter what happens, it can't intrude except for when you want it to. And I had a perfect example of this only a year ago. I think it was in Gatwick Airport. And suddenly I came across this guy in the middle of the concourse, sitting in the lotus position, <laughs> meditating. And the crowd is sort of flowing around him, but completely ignoring him. And my first impression was, <laughs> couldn't he find somewhere better? Because uh, I've had to use this myself in airports, so very stressful places. And uh, I always go off to a flank or, to be perfectly honest, quite often lock myself in the toilet, but somewhere away from people. And then I thought a little bit further and I thought, no, actually, this guy is probably trying to test himself because I, I did look at him for a little while and I thought he's in deep meditation. Um, and I don't think that was some sort of, you know, ludicrous gesture. I think that was a genuine case of somebody who was actually meditating properly. You can get to that level of testing yourself. But basically, once you've got familiar with using the simple technique of observing the breath and using that to help keep other thoughts out, then you get to a point where you can basically ignore pretty much anything. But as, as you said earlier on, Pat, you can't go around all day long doing this. So it really is just a little oasis. It's something you can do if the office is getting too heavy for you or anything at all that's affecting you. Just remove yourself to a spot um, and just go into that process for a while. When you come out of it, as Pat quite rightly said about the breathing, by focusing on in-breaths, uh, I say to our guests, count up to four metaphorically. And when you're exhaling, count up to six and try to exhale longer than you inhale. That has that very calming effect. And when I've explained the, um, the science behind it, in other words, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic autonomic nervous systems and how they work in conjunction with each other, it all makes sense. And suddenly you find yourself calmed. And I've had a few meltdowns in, in airports, particularly where I've got it wrong with the boarding pass or something like that. And I've had that flush of panic and I'm broken out into a sweat and I'm breathing heavily. It always works. Move off to a flank, sit down quietly somewhere and just focus on what you're doing. And within the space of less than five minutes, I'm back to normal again. It's a brilliant tool. I recommend it to anybody. It's not difficult to learn. One of, one of the things when I work with veterans, you know, I say to them, have you, have you ever um, been on patrol? And, you know, most of them have done that either in their basic training or real life. And I say, OK, so when you're on patrol, did you focus on everything you could hear, everything you could see? 
everything that was going on around you or were you too busy thinking about what you're going to do when you get back or what you had for dinner and people say oh god no it's a really dangerous situation so i have to be really present and really in the moment noticing everything so that's mindfulness the other one is a, a really good example is when they've done the basic weapons training you know my understanding is um, you're very much taught to be aware of your intake and your outtake of breath very very mindful and you know again you, you learn it if you think about weapon training you learn that to the point of mastery so no matter how stressed you are no matter if it's raining if you're cold wet tired or hungry no matter where you are you know how to do this because you have practiced the skill so much so a lot of the time people say i tried mindfulness it didn't work and i said well think about parachuting if you were going to learn to parachute what's the best thing to do get into a plane i give you the parachute and say right here's a parachute now what you need to do is put it onto your back jump out of the plane you pull this string here you pull that string there you move your body this way work it out on the way down you'll be fine or do i give you loads and loads of lessons and really get you to practice before i ask you to jump out of the plane so the first thing is practice practice when you're calm and the funny thing is people don't practice when they're calm because they think they don't need it but you need to practice when you're calm so that when you're stressed you can use it if you come from a military background you would have done it in those two examples I've said, if you've done your weapons training and you've ever been on patrol, you would have done it. Typically people come back and say, it doesn't work because now I'm thinking of everything. And it's, you're not thinking of, you're just aware of thoughts that were already there. And the analogy I give is I say, imagine you're standing on a beach and you are seeing the waves and the waves are coming and they're going. When you're not being mindful, you're turning your back inland are the waves still there? And people say, of course the waves are still there. Okay, so just by ignoring something doesn't mean it's not there. What mindfulness is, is about turning towards the waves and noticing them rise and fall and just not being overwhelmed by them. And Andy, you mentioned about thoughts and, and the important thing is it, it's about taking a very big overwhelming experience and saying, these are the thoughts, these are the emotions, these are the body sensations, my heart's racing, my tummy's knotting, my emotions are anxiety, fear, my thoughts are I can't cope, my urge is to run away or to hide or to shout and say, right, okay, so I'm gonna break this big scary thing down into four areas, my thoughts, my emotions, my bodily, bodily sensations and my urges to act. Okay, what can I do about my thoughts? What can I do about my emotions? What can I do about my bodily sensations? What can I do about my urges to act? So it's about breaking a very big and scary, overwhelming experience down into some very small steps, probably just like you did when you learned any skill, riding a bike, stripping a weapon. It took you time, it was difficult, you practiced and practiced and practiced, and then you became really good at it. Noticing more thoughts and being more overwhelmed is unfortunately, a sign that you're doing mindfulness right and it's a sign that people think oh my goodness i'm doing it wrong but the reality is no if you're noticing more thoughts and you're getting a little bit wobbly to begin with because you're noticing more it means you're doing it right you just need to not be overwhelmed by that take deep breaths break it down in small chunks and do it step by step uh you know and there was a time when i would have laughed at all this because you have to focus on the, the now very much. And I wasn't aware of the fact that I was being mindful. Although that word has been around all my life and, and just simply being mindful about something was always understood by me as being, you know, thinking of that particular topic. 
Uh, so there's nothing new in this. Um, all they've done is they've just taken it and applied it to uh, something that is otherwise daunting because it seems to be so huge. It isn't really, to be honest. It's very simple stuff. Um, but what a difference it's made to me. And it was sitting you know, on the beaches out here, staring at the beautiful sea and letting the mind either freewheel or thinking specifically about PTSD topics and just going through that process and writing little words in the sand that helped me to sort of identify what was actually going on. That was how I got past my problems was by teasing it all out. And that's a form of mindfulness is actually focusing on it. It's just concentration, really. You've got to get the right sort of uh, attitude to it. You, you've got to see it as mind training. And when I'm talking to our people, I say, look, you have no problem with understanding the concept of physical training. But now we're starting to look at training your mind. It's the same thing. You've got to think about it from a, an athlete's point of view. This is an important form of training that you need to adopt. And it also fits in with my concept of the Zen warrior, which is basically we've done the fighting bit. We've done the drinking and the naffy bit and all the other bits we do as young men. Now we're moving into an older age, a better age, a more wiser age. And you need to expand. You need to start now exploring what your actual capabilities are. Have you thought about the arts? Have you done anything in that direction whatsoever? Our guest last year, Rick, within the space of 30 minutes, was playing a very basic riff on a guitar, but he was thrilled to bits with it. He'd never touched a guitar in his life. He then got into uh, clay sculpting, uh, and this is simply because he just decided to expand his mind and try some different new things. Well, I think without meditation, he wouldn't have been able to achieve that, but he is now using it as, on a daily basis to help him not only cope with the past, but actually to enhance his quality of life. His quality of life is now better as a result of the problems. That's a great way of turning it around and seeing the positives and the negatives. You know, you and I play a bit of guitar, Andy, and we've talked about this before, how you get, you know, you get, you get so immersed in it and so focused that whenever you stop doing it and go back to what you should be doing, uh, you, f you feel refreshed and uh, like you've had a break. And perhaps, you know, in really simplistic terms, that's what a meditation really is or mindfulness. It's, it's, a, it's a break, you know, it's just giving your, your brain a bit of a rest. Just to stick with the guitar thing at the moment, you know very well, mate, that I don't go anywhere without one. Uh, and actually, I've become a very boring guitarist recently because I've got a nice little phrase which works really well. It's very simple. It's just A minor and, and an E7, I think, uh, and a, a few variations on that. But I explore the rhythm uh, and, and the different hand movements, you know, whether it's damping or it's uh, picking arpeggio or whatever it is or strumming. There's no set pattern to anything, uh, but it's a beautiful form of meditation. While I'm doing that, I'm not really thinking of anything else. And the proof of the pudding is, that when I think about something else, suddenly my playing ability stops. But the reality is, um, to get into this properly, you have to let everything go. It's a beautiful feeling of freedom. The other elements that I show to our guests is I think all I call the happy trigger. All it is, is expanding your imagination and your memory. I invite our guests to make a very short list of the happiest moments in their lives. And they vary, of course. In my case, um, perhaps the most effective is my wedding. Uh, and I, I started thinking about that probably six months prior to the wedding when I actually proposed to Shirley. That was a very emotional moment in front of her family. Uh, then we fast forward to the week before the wedding when I went up to Torquay with some friends on the boat and that was hilarious. Uh, then we have the day itself and then the reception, which was fabulous. Uh, and then the honeymoon afterwards, which was even more incredible and so on. You know, it's actually a blockbuster. It could almost be a box set. Um, but I don't need to do the whole thing. I can pick at any point or just let it happen by random. The way I bring it to my mind is that when I started doing this, 
I made a conscious effort to think that through. I got to somewhere quiet, no distractions, and I started at the beginning, and I just ran the whole sequence through my head. And while I was doing that, I was pressing my thumb, and in my case, the second finger on my right hand. doesn't matter what finger, it's irrelevant. The point is, there's a physical action associated with a thought. Now, once you've practiced that for a while, try it yourself and go off somewhere and just conduct that action and see what comes to your mind. In every case with me, I'm back at the wedding. And that's how I overcome those bad moments. So I've just cocked up in the airport. I've gone off to a flank. I've done a bit of meditating to calm myself down. The breathing is a big factor there. And then I just squeeze those fingers and, and four thumb and, uh, together. And I'm now back at somewhere in my wedding. And I'm able to look at a neutral spot on a wall. There may be people all around me. There's noise, there's activity, but I'm at my wedding and I'm having a great time. And it, for as long as it needs to be. It doesn't need to be very long at all. It might only be a minute or two. It can be the whole thing if you want. But either way, I've used my capability. I'm in control of this. This is the beauty of it. You are in control. For guys with PTSD, they have no control over their thoughts. These thoughts intrude at any time of the day and through the night in the, in the guise of flashbacks and, and nightmares and so on. Um, they're not in control of anything. And that this is what desperately worries them, which is why so many take their own lives. They feel as if there's no way out. Well, this is a form of control. You've chosen to conduct a certain action that helps your mind find that sense of balance again. Uh, once you start thinking like that, that's a huge boost to your morale because you realize you're back on, this, on the right track again. And these are all very simple tools, but the key to this is practice. You've got to keep doing it, just like dieting, just like physical exercise. Without practice, it means nothing. We're reliant on your support to continue helping veterans living with PTSD. If you'd like to donate, please go to justgiving.com forward slash the mountain way. We'd be very grateful.